catching joy. I am from the Midwest, born in South Dakota, then moved to Iowa, and then to Minnesota before we moved west to Arizona, and then to California. My son, as well as many members of my extended family, live in Minnesota still. Growing up, I learned through years of watching my family demonstrate what is known sometimes as the Minnesota Goodbye. The Minnesota Goodbye would not be described as a graceful exit. It is rather an extended exercise in uncertainty. Are we leaving or are we staying for a while, just getting ready to leave? We would be at my grandmother's house, and many other relatives lived in the same small town as my grandma, and sitting in the kitchen visiting with some assortment of those relatives on a Sunday afternoon, and I could tell when my father started shifting in his chair and looking out the kitchen window toward our car parked in the driveway that he was thinking it was time to go. I had school in the morning, and he had work, and it took a little over four hours to drive home. He would then sit up in his chair and say, Well, I suppose, looking meaningfully at my mother, who would probably be at the sink drying dishes while she talked to her mother, who was sitting at the kitchen table. Having repeated this a couple times to no avail, my father would stand and begin jangling the car keys in his pocket, a habit which I have adopted and have found to be somewhat hazardous in the present age of car alarms. I have inadvertently set ours off more than once. My mother would eventually hear the keys jangling and see my father at the door and say, oh, yeah, I suppose it's about that time. Upon which my grandmother would say, oh, are you leaving? You'd better take some of that food with you. We'll never eat all that. And she would begin pulling things out of the refrigerator and finding containers and bags. My uncle would say something like, too bad you didn't get to see Mac. And my mother would respond, yes, I meant to get down there. How are they doing? And another conversation would ensue, which would even pull my father into talking again, though he stayed standing and kept the keys jangling. Sometimes these conversations that ensued after I was first told we were leaving would take so long that I would ignore the initial request to get ready to go and continue playing with my cousins waiting for the second or third warning. Get your stuff now, we're going. My father's voice sounded a little more impatient, so I knew I'd better start moving, and I would then help collect coats and hats and bags and suitcases and the two bags of food that were now sitting on the kitchen table, and my dad and I would make two or three trips to the car while my mother continued visiting. Finally, everything was out in the car, depending on the season and just how cold it was, the car might already be running. And we would go in to collect my mother, and then we would all linger at the door a few moments. Okay, well, yep, thanks for coming. You drive safely now. And we would walk out to the car, followed by an uncle or two, an aunt or two, a cousin or two, and maybe a neighbor who noticed the conglomeration of people in the driveway. 
At this point, Mac himself or any other person we had not seen on this visit might just be coming to my grandmother's house and would apologize to my parents for having missed them this time, but they would be sure and get together next time, and there would be a little more conversation among everyone, and thanks for coming, and drive safely, and a few messages to pass along to others, and then, one by one, my parents and I, waiting for any brief lulls in the conversation, would actually take our seats in the car, and my parents would roll down their windows, And I would follow their lead, and we would exchange some more thank yous and come back soons and take care nows with people leaning over to see us. And finally, we would back slowly out of the driveway, and my grandma might come out with one more thing from the fridge that she had neglected to put in one of our food bags, so we would stop and get the bag, and my mom would thank her and say she'd better get back in the house. It was too cold to be out here. And as my father finally completed backing out and put the car in drive, he would give two short bursts on the horn to say goodbye, and everyone who was outside would wave, and Grandma, who was back in the house by now, would wave from the window, and we would move slowly down the small town street toward the highway, wondering perhaps if there was anything we had forgotten or left behind. Sometimes we would even be followed down the street. Remember, this was a small town. It was not really hazardous to walk in the street. We would be followed for a block or two by laughing, waving cousins, and I would wave in return from the back window before the car picked up speed beyond their capacity to keep up, and they tired of running. The time that elapsed from my father's initial, admittedly indirect announcement of, well, I suppose, to actually approaching the highway could easily be over an hour. There were so many things that happened over the course of that time from first realizing that we had to go to the point of actually going that it was sometimes hard to make myself believe we were actually leaving and would not round the block and return for one thing or another. Now, one could attribute this to the quirks of Midwestern or Minnesotan culture or if one were less charitable, a possible shared disorder. But I, possibly because this is my culture, I see it, among other possibilities and explanations, as a sincere, if unsuccessful, attempt to hold on to joy. There was joy in those visits, in being together, in laughing together, in playing, being silly, eating together, and sharing love as clumsily and imperfectly as people do across the generations. And when the time comes to leave, to bring an end to whatever magic we had happened to conjure in our Midwestern Scandinavian Lutheran cauldron, well, we wanted to make it last just a little bit longer. And it never actually worked. 
Once I had heard my father's keys jingle and saw him standing by the door, I could steal a few more moments of time goofing with my cousins, but the specter of the visit ending now hung over all my activities so that it was no longer the carefree, unself-conscious goofing of just moments ago, but a goofing off that held a now clear time constraint. We could put off leaving, but some of the particular joy of that gathering had already ended. I could try to hold on to the joy, but even as I imagined a wonderfully severe storm or a miraculously serious automotive malfunction that may allow us to stay longer, part of me was already engaged with the routine waiting for me at home, homework that needed to be done before school the next morning, TV shows I wanted to watch at home, friends I would be seeing back, back to daily life. We could delay the actual departure with the Minnesota goodbye, but that would not help to capture and extend the joy any more than Fern in the story could capture the puppy's bounce in her box or the father's tickles and the baby's chuckles in her tin or the sun's sparkles on the water using her net and her paper bag and her saucepan so that she could bring joy to her nana. Finding joy was easy, Fern decides, but catching it is hard. That is an important principle in my view for living. Finding joy is easy, but catching it is hard. I might even say catching it is impossible. And to recognize that, I will try to, that I will try to do that. I will try to catch it. Nevertheless. But it's important that I be aware of that. Because sometimes that inclination will show up in relatively harmless ways, the Minnesota goodbye. And sometimes it can show up in extremely harmful ways such as addiction. I have no doubt that a piece of my alcoholism was indulging the fantasy that joy could be bottled and sold and that I could then experience that joy at times of my choosing. I could somehow recreate that first rush, the freedom from self-consciousness, the happy camaraderie of gathering with friends at a bar or party or simply passing time at someone's house. And I indulged that illusion long after it was clear that I could not recreate whatever joy I had felt and that rather by continuing to drink, I was actually pushing any possibility of joy farther and farther from me and instead was creating and recreating misery. The desire to capture joy is natural. The illusion of being able to capture joy can be deadly. 
And you can trace it in addictions of all kinds. People shop or gamble or fall in love or chase money or power or sex or fame or even enlightenment and spiritual fulfillment. Any of these may be pursued in hopes of not only experiencing joy, but in capturing it, possessing it, only to find as Fern did in the story, that one cannot close up joy in a box, nor catch it in a tin, nor snag it with a net, nor scoop it up in a saucepan or a paper bag. One can only testify to its existence, as Fern does when she visits her nana. Joy may be experienced, but it cannot be controlled. And after joy, the laundry. After the ecstasy of joy, the routine of daily life in which often we are not actively experiencing joy, even though we know the possibility of joy is always present. I took the title of this sermon from a book by Jack Cornfield entitled, After the Ecstasy, the laundry. And though he is talking about experiences of enlightenment and how they are lived out amidst the challenges and routines of daily life, I think there is a similarity here to experiences of joy. Indeed, he even uses joy in his description of enlightenment, beginning the book with these words, slightly paraphrased. Enlightenment does exist. Experiences of unbounded freedom and joy are more common than you know and not far away. There is one further truth, however. They don't last. Our realizations and awakenings show us the reality of the world and they bring transformation. But they pass. They pass, and what then? We do the laundry. We wash the dishes. We clean the house and make the bed. We volunteer at church. Notice how I snuck that in there. (laughs) We do what we do, accepting that we cannot carry that experience of joy forever, but just as confident that it will be available again. Joy is a type of enlightenment about what is present to us all the time, but which we only occasionally, that which only occasionally floods our awareness. That before which, in which, out of which, and into which we live, even the mystery has become present to us, says Martin Buber. We have known it. But we acquire no knowledge from it which might lessen or moderate its mysteriousness. We have felt release but not discovered a solution. We cannot approach others with what we have received and say, you must know this and you must do this. We can only go and confirm its truth. It cannot be captured 
in boxes or tins with nets or saucepans, not even with rules or advice or spiritual precepts. We can only go and confirm its truth. Fern told Nana all the things she had seen. So enjoy that Minnesota goodbye if you happen to come from a culture that celebrates goodbyes like that. Or any other such harmless forms of trying to hold on to joy. It will happen. We will do it. And be careful not to fall into the illusion that joy can be extended or captured or bottled or sold. Stay ready for the next time that the gates of light made of light swing open and you are allowed to see in experiencing the joy that awaits us in sharing this existence with one another. And in the meantime, Throw in that load of laundry.